Welcome to Ars Equi, the podcast on all things law and technology. I'm Tima. I'm Paul. And on this episode, Traveller Surveillance. So today we are joined by our friend and colleague, Anthony, who is doing his PhD thesis in the area of traveler surveillance. So we thought we would bring him in because he's really knowledgeable in this area and he's definitely the the best person to talk us through exactly what's going on in the area of traveler surveillance and what we should be concerned about. Hi, Anthony. Hi. Hi, everyone. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be chatting with you tonight and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great having you. Um, We want to talk about traveler surveillance this time, so how your movement is being tracked when you cross borders. And recently there has been a lot of development in this area with um, especially the visa application process, but also for EU citizens and how their movements across borders and via planes and everything is being tracked and how this information is being shared between countries, but also to law enforcement. So we want to look into how how this works and, and what the, the background of this is and yeah, really what the framework of all of it is. So how much data is being processed and for what purposes and what is happening to my information. Right. So let's start it off by looking at the perspective from um, a non-European citizen, right? So a non-European citizen looking to travel into the EU has to get a visa in many cases. So that process, if you've ever applied for a visa, is already pretty intrusive and you have to give up a lot of information. You have to prove a lot of things. You have to prove that you're not going to try to stay in Europe forever. You have to prove that you have means to move around, means to return home. But there are plans to even make this even more extensive. So Anthony, chat to us a little bit about the changes in the visa information system. Okay, so um, I think when when talking about changes to how the system is operating now, we need to start uh, talking about its biometric component. Uh, currently, the VIS, how how is it called, um, collects fingerprints of visa applicants, so people who want to apply for a short stay visa within the EU, the so-called Schengen visa. So, for example, they want to visit the European Union for tourism purposes or to visit a family relative. Um, So now they need, among other biographical or identity data, they need to also give their fingerprints. Mm. Uh, And the visa information system has its component that that allows comparison and identification of people via the fingerprints. And on top of that, the the pending amendment of the visa information system suggests introduces a facial recognition component as well. So on top of fingerprinting, we will have another biometric uh, feature of the system that would allow to search people to query the database with someone's facial image. Okay, so this is probably the most uh, significant change. Now, why is this happening? Because, um, I mean, this is all for immigration purposes at least that's like the primary goal of this right well i mean this is like you know this is a a broader problem and a broader debate that it goes far far beyond the visa information system and short stay visas um in the whole there is like something that is referred to as a landscape of large-scale it systems at european borders there is a number of them 
each serving a slightly different purpose, but all somehow uh, connected with the immigration and or law enforcement purposes. And now they are undergoing significant amendments, significant changes and also significant development. Um, and part of that is that the biometric functionalities of those systems will be extended and expanded. Mm -hmm. And facial recognition is the, the, the primary example here. So this is not only the V system, but also, for example, Eurodac that will be extended with this functionality that would allow to search the database by with someone's facial image. Um, I don't know if we want to like get into it uh, in, on a such uh, detailed level, but we will have also something that is called the interoperability of those databases in the near future, in the next two or three years. All of those six or seven databases will be talking to each other. They will be talking to each other uh, through a shared biometric matching service. So mm -hmm. this is a component that will store biometric data from all of those systems, from the visa information system, from uh, the Eurodac, the European dactyloscopy, from also the new systems that are being currently developed. And it will combine it all together under one roof. So I think it's important that we see this as part, as a, as a broader trend, as a broader phenomenon. Uh, that has its very specific impact on the visa information system, but it has its reasons somewhere outside the system. And this new database, this is the common identity repository. I mean, this is something slightly different. Okay. So within the, the interoperability package that will connect all those databases together, uh, it has several components. One of them is the common identity repository that will extract um, biographical and also biometric data from different systems and put them together. Mm -hmm. And then from those biometric data in the common identity repository, biometric templates will be extracted and stored in the shared uh, biometric matching service. I know this sounds awfully complicated, so just... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, honestly, this is one of the biggest problems with understanding what is happening here, that it, like, you can't just start talking about it because there is so much background knowledge necessary yeah. uh, that it also is, is a huge like a research um, issue. So just as an explanation, the difference between biometric data and a biometric template is that when I take a picture of your face, this is biometric data. Mm -hmm. And then if um, software extracts the characteristic points of your face that allow distinguishing you from another person and saves us saves this in a, like a mathematical binary code, then this is a biometric template. So the actual comparison is not happening with, you know, images, it's but with the, template. with the mathematical representations of okay. characteristic points on your face or on your, on your fingertip. Okay. So in line with that, I mean, I read that the plans are to apply these to children below the age of six. What is the reasoning for needing such extensive information on little children traveling with their families? I mean, just so maybe let's start with a small distinction. There will be an age limit for fingerprinting and the, this age limit will be six years old. So okay. kids below six will not be fingerprinted when, mm -hmm. for example, applying for a short stay visa. 
but there is no similar age limit for facial recognition and taking facial images. So when a kid will be applying for visa, there is no real limit for that below which it will be illegal to collect their facial images. Which is very weird because how are you going to like, do fake facial recognition on a baby? And like, if it grows up, nobody will like. You don't know what it looks like, right? Yeah, I mean, it sounds stupid. <laughs> what? Uh, but it's. I mean, I, I. don't know. Honestly, I. I don't know what are what's you know what's the rationale behind this. It can be that this 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 has been overlooked, or maybe there are some other reasons for this. But as it stands now, you know, there is no limit for 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 facial images. Now the justification for all of this is. On the one hand, visa shopping, so you can't apply in multiple member states um, after you've been declined by one, uh, and also documentation of irregular migration. Um, so, you know, being able to identify people when they show up at borders and, and like uniquely being able to identify them. But there's also this law enforcement access to this, and this kind of changes the purpose, um, and this is something that is quite interesting and quite dangerous, right? Um, that all of a sudden data that is there for actually migration purposes uh, now is used in the prevention or, or, or the investigation of crimes. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, the most interesting part of all of this. And this is what also brought me to, to this topic and why I want to spend so much time on this already and <laughs> probably still spend some time on it. It's that, um, so maybe just to give an example to, to, to our audience, when you're applying, for example, for a visa, you submit your data to an, in an embassy, in a consulate, and then you're being issued a visa by this consulate. Then you travel to, let's say, I don't know, you travel to Austria, mm. you, you uh, get off the plane at the airport, and then the border guard is checking whether you actually have the visa. Right, mm -hmm. and they look in your passport. You have the visa sticker. They confirm it. For example, uh, they enter your data into the visa information system. They see, okay, this is a real visa. This is not a fake uh, mm -hmm. sticker in the passport. You mm -hmm. can enter the uh, the country, and that's like a border management slash immigration purpose of all of this. On top of that, we have the law enforcement purpose, uh, which is. Uh, to put it in a very simple words, if there is an investigation going on and a third country national is a suspect, it is possible to query the visa information system to, for example, confirm their identity and to learn more about their travel patterns, their past visa applications, and, and so on and so forth. And this, again, is not characteristic just to the, um, the visa information system, this is characteristic to this whole landscape of, uh, of uh, systems and databases that are operating at European external borders, where in all of those cases, the law enforcement in one way or another gets access to, to the data. But is it possible, for example, that if I provide my fingerprints when, when I apply for a visa, um, that this is being used in a criminal investigation where they find fingerprints on the scene of a crime and then compare this? Or is it just, you know, more like basic information about where have you been? I mean, both, depending on the, on the scenario, but it can be both. So 
if there are, there are you know fingerprints collected at uh, at a crime scene and there is a suspicion that a third country national may have been involved, mm. it's mm. possible to query the, you know with the fingerprints that are collected and are yet unknown to whom they belong. Mm. It's possible to query the system with those to see if there is a hit of there is there is no hit. But I, I think it's really interesting here the distinction between EU citizens and non-EU citizens because you don't do this for EU citizens. No, of course not. Of course not. And you know this decentralized aspect of all of this that the data are stored centrally for third country nationals is especially interesting if you think about how this works for EU citizens. Mm. So um, there is a new actually a new regulation that will enter into force in I think in August this year which requires that member states of the European Union will be issuing like new formats of identity cards, national IDs. And those identity cards are supposed to store within themselves uh, two fingerprints and a facial image, so biometric data of the EU citizens. Mm. But this is a different model. This is a decentralized model where everyone will be carrying their biometric data in their pocket in the wallet. Mm. And if needed, they will have to present them to a certain authority that will have the, you know, the power to check what's on that. And with third country nationals, there is like a whole different approach to this, right? So we are building a database, this, for example, the shared biometric matching service that will store data on 400 million third country nationals. That's crazy. And I think what's also crazy is the storage period, right? So you're allowed to come into the EU for a period of um, what is it? 90 days. 90 days. And yeah. thereafter, all of that information will be kept for how long is that? Five years minimum? Five years, yeah. And, you know, so we're building it, you know, by extracting data from those different biometric data from those different systems and putting them under one roof. We're building a second or third biggest biometric database in the world on people who, I don't know, just came to visit. And then left. <laughs> and then left, right? And did nothing wrong in the process. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, there are people who, who you know, violate the visa requirements and they are overstaying and then they commit crimes and mm. do whatnot. But, I mean, this is also so interesting for me that we're speaking here in general about people who did not do anything to, you know, give rise to a suspicion against them. Mm. They just want to enter. They're this, you know, this traveler who is embarking upon a travel and they want to come here and they want to see, I don't know, Germany or France. And or... spend money and add to the economy and participate in what's yeah. going on here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I don't know. It's, I think it's interesting. I mean, this many people approach this with the certainty that this is obvious and this is normal or even natural that... Mm countries have the right to to know who is entering their territory and for how long and when they are leaving but you know it gets most the most interesting when you look at it from the perspective of the charter of fundamental rights which it's article 8 and 7 reserved the, the right or grant the right to to protection of personal data and privacy of of one's life to everyone not just to eu citizens mm. Now, I also think this is interesting um, because there will be a new system called the European Travel Information Authorization System, which essentially applies to third country nationals that come from countries that where they don't require a visa. So it's essentially visa-free stay, but you still have to film up similar to the US. 
you have to fill out the pre-registration and there is a whole process behind this. So it kind of becomes very similar to a visa application process. Mm. Uh, and it's against the whole thought of like, you know, granting visa freedom to a country is like you're trusting this country's kind of, so you don't need to check every citizens, but, but now, not really trusting them. But not really trusting yeah. them, now you, you're checking them anyway. But I have a question about this just no, when you ahead. respond. Um, is the storage period the same for non-EU non citizens who need a visa or we're not sure or, or is it different? Yeah, so maybe starting with, with Paul's question. Um, yeah, I mean, this, this is very interesting. So this, but this is also very similar to, to the systems that are already operating in, in the US or in Canada, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, the difference with, with the whole visa application process is that it will be automated. Mm -hmm. So now when you apply for a visa, it goes through, through, you know, for a, for a consulate and there are actually some people who look into your application and they make a decision, um, based on, on, on a number of different, uh, factors. And with, with ETIAS, with this automated tool for visa free. Uh, countries, so countries wh whose citizens do not need to have a visa to enter the EU, this will be happening automatically. And this is one of the reasons this this was also quite controversial within the bubble of, you know, privacy and, and data protection um, maniacs, that um, the, the, the algorithm will be fed with some risk indicators by, for example, Europol. Mm -hmm. And then it will, based on this, decide whether someone um, should be entering or should not be entering uh, the European Union. Big disclaimer here, um, although the positive decisions, so granting uh, or allowing entry to the EU will be done automatically within a couple of minutes from the application, the negative decisions that will deny entry, they will be reviewed by a human um, officer within within Frontex. Well, at least. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's not as, you know, as, as bad as some would paint it, that this is like completely automated with no mm -hmm. human oversight. I mean, this is this is not true. Uh, but still, you know, it's interesting because this is one of the few like quite automated systems that will be, you know, be making some sorts of decisions about who who can and who cannot enter the, the union. And pretty important decisions because say for example you get rejected upon first application that information is stored right it's exactly. maintained yeah so that could go on to affect your future applications for other visas and things like that yeah exactly and i mean this is um you know this this can this can very easily turn into uh, what is referred to as like a feedback loop, right? So when, when you have an, an algorithm that is making decisions, it can very easily start going into circles and just focus on a certain group of people that will be granted or given a positive decision. Mm -hmm. And everyone who is not meeting those criteria that are self-perpetuating will be given negative decisions. So like it will be pro and it, it, it already is to some extent really hard to get into the circle, mm. you know, to get your first visa, to get mm. your first travel. And the more visas you have, uh, uh, you, you have gotten in the past, the more travels you have done, the easier it is to get the next ones. 100%. I mean, I have examples of friends and Anthony and I spoke about this a while ago, but I have examples of friends who are genuinely good people, you know, <laughs> have stable jobs, um, 
So they, there's no threat that they're going to come to Europe and mm. stay and overstay. They have jobs, they own homes, things like that, but they've just never really traveled that much. And then they get rejected often because they fit a specific profile, you know, black male African between the ages of 20 to 35. And the notion is that is the type of person who will not come back. So you often get into a place where you get rejected three, four, five times from different um, embassies and it affects your travel history for the rest of your life. Getting a work permit in another country becomes really difficult, all sorts of things. It just, it makes it really difficult moving forward. No, absolutely. And I mean, here, you know, this is a problem that goes far, far beyond that, you know, travel surveillance. This is a problem of how algorithms are making automated decisions about people. Mm. And, you know, the, the, the role played here by, by statistics where, you know, it's just because you, you look at a problem and you define certain criteria that you think that will help you understand the problem what the statistics is showing you is not the real world it's just the criteria that you're looking for and it doesn't necessarily have to be the true reason for someone's behavior mm. so this is you know this whole this whole debate about correlation and causation that is very uh very very oftenly um mixed up by by, by people looking into these issues definitely so um there's going to be a changes with relation to permanent residents so how does this affect them? Because they're kind of in the middle, right? So they're not fully U.S. citizens yet. I mean, EU citizens yet, but they do have certain rights and, you know, certain requirements and things like that. So what are the changes in that regard? Yeah, so just maybe to, to explain briefly, if someone is a permanent resident in the, in the European Union, it's pretty much the only difference between them and an EU citizen is the passport. Mm. But they can they can live here, they can work here, they can they can learn here, they can study here. Um, and so far they were not included in, for example, the, the uh, visa information system or others. And they were treated rather equally to EU citizens than to third country nationals who come here just for a quick brief period of time. Mm. Um, but this may change, and this is part of, of the amendment to the visa information system, where it is planned that also permanent residents and their data about their permanent residentship will be stored in the, in the visa. And this is, you know, this is coming, I don't want to say dangerously close, but this is getting really, uh, really close to, to the legal status of, of EU citizens. And this really, when you when you think about it from from the legal perspective, from the perspective of fundamental rights, it really raises the question: if a permanent resident can have their data, including their biometric data, their mm. fingerprints, their facial images, stored in one centralized database, and those are people, they are not coming in and out, you know, through the border constantly. Mm. They're living here. Then, what stops? from the legal perspective, from including EU citizens in, in, in those databases. Because honestly, I do not believe that having a passport or not is enough under Article 52 yeah. to restrict you know, someone's right, for example, the right to protection of their data or privacy of their life. So I, know, I don't know, this is, this is you know, very interesting and I'm very much looking forward to someone challenging this in the Court of Justice of the EU 
to see how this you know how this will play out so do you feel like it will get to a point where eu eu citizens are included in these databases or do you feel like it might still be a while before we get there and what's what's really holding what's really stopping that step yeah i mean we got to trace back like like the history here right to 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 get an understanding and if if you look at the because you know when when the commission is suggesting a new legislation they have a proposal with the legal text mm-hmm. and on top of that they have something that's called an explanatory memorandum it's just a, like a written text normal text where they explain in plain words why they want this legislation to be passed and there is one phrase that keeps reoccurring in each and every of those legislations in the field during the last i know 20 years and that's uh, a phrase information gap there's an information gap and the, it goes like this one database is created and then it can be argued that since we have this database we see that we are missing data about people who are not in this database yet <laughs> so what do we do we create another one mm. that's how we ended up with i don't know i have lost count it's like six or seven databases now each and every one of them starting with this information gap explanation mm. and this also goes to the law enforcement access right so it is also a very common justification right next to terrorist attacks i mean you would be surprised to see how many terrorist attacks are included in explanatory memoranda to justify law enforcement uh, access to those databases i mean i guess you have pretty much all of them in the in the last 20 years in europe yeah um so you know that that's how it works and with with the most recent changes to to the permanent residents or holders of long stay visas um this is the same the same the same pattern it's an information gap they are still missing from the database but there is a very good analysis of this from the fundamental rights agency where they tried to follow the same path and then they concluded that well the next information gap there will be is EU citizens. Mm. And I think then we'll see the uproar because I don't think yeah. it really resonates with people now, especially if you if you're a European, you've lived here your entire life, you've never applied for a visa, you don't really understand the ins and outs of what this whole situation looks like and what it means. And I think until it hits closer to home, then they'll be more concerned, but by that stage it might be a little too late. Yeah, I feel so too. I mean, this, this, you know, this may be very well one of those cases where, um, when you don't care for what's happening to the others, then it's going to be too late when it's happening to yourself. To yourself. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I would like to be optimistic here, but <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not necessarily going in the right direction. You know, having having applied for visas and things like that, essentially all my life, I don't think I'm very optimistic because it's already so invasive and the fact that they still feel like there's an information gap they still feel like they need more data they still feel like they need more databases and everything needs to still be more investigated and looked into more i feel like the pattern will continue to replicate itself yeah it it is also you know fascinating to look at it from like a very academic perspective of how arguments are created mm like th- this way of forging or creating arguments that you say that something is missing b- 
because you have already created something and <laughs> the, the existence of this something suggests that something else is missing. Mm. This is, I mean, this is absolutely fascinating to me. And I, I, I you know, I, I don't know. It's, it seems that if it's possible to include, include permanent residents in biometric databases, yeah. not, I mean, there are, you know, only two options. Either this is already illegal under the charter mm -hmm. and the court of justice will strike it down at some point or it's legal and not much prevents including your citizens in those databases exactly so having beings um at the stage where we're talking about eu citizens and what goes on with travel surveillance in that context let's talk a little bit about pnr data and what this means for eu citizens and essentially what is pnr data Okay, so um, PNR data stands for passenger name record data. Um, so every time we travel by plane, or well, now we don't travel by plane, <laughs> <laughs> but when we still used to travel by plane, uh, when you were buying a ticket, you have to give quite some information to the airline. So who you are, uh, something about uh, where you're going, how you're gonna pay for the, for the ticket, uh, your identification document and so on. And all of those information that were collected by the airlines. And first, long, long, long time ago, they were only connect collected for business purposes. So I think it was the 50s or the 60s where they started doing that. And they figured if there are multiple airlines, they s and sometimes people buy tickets for two airlines in one flight. So they're flying to city A where they switch to another airline. Mm. Uh, those those companies need to talk to each other to make sure that you know they do not miss a passenger in mm -hmm. the airport or something. So they figure out they will have like a standard uh, form of what data are being collected and they will be exchanged between between the airline companies. And sooner or later, the law enforcement realized, well, this is an interesting source of data and we should tap into this. And that is exactly what happened. Um, the collection of PNR data came to Europe through international agreements. So this was, again, in the wake of uh, terrorist attacks. It started with 9-11, uh, when the, the, uh, the US government were putting some, was putting some pressure on their allies all over the world to exchange data on people who fly planes. And as a result, uh, Europe has signed um, agreements with the US, also with Australia. Yeah. And those two are uh, still in power and based on them data on people flying between the EU and Australia or US are being exchanged. And then, and this is, this is an interesting part, there was also an attempt to sign a, such an agreement with Canada, but it was struck down by the Court of Justice as being in breach of the Charter. And I don't know how much time do we have to, to get into this because <laughs> I could get talk into it. <laughs> I could. OK, then let's let's just I'll try to keep it brief. OK, um, so the, the interesting thing here was that although the court struck down the agreement with Canada, it was not on the basis of what may seem most controversial. And I think the most controversial fact is that we collect data about everyone on the plane. And we do not distinguish between suspects and non-suspects. Mm -hmm. We collect data about everyone because they were collected by the airlines because they need to have those data about all passengers right. who will be boarding the plane. Mm -hmm. right. um, and then all of that is passed to the, the law enforcement. 
And this was not a problem for the Court of Justice. I mean, this, this was very surprising that uh, there were, like the Court of Justice found a number of other problems with this, with this agreement that I will not go into now. But the most controversial one, that there was no link between criminal activity and the person whose data are collected was not an issue. Which is interesting when you compare it to data retention case law of the, of the Court of Justice, where this was exactly the biggest problem. So with, with the data retention directive that was uh, sanctioning collection of electronic communications data and passing it on to the law enforcement, which was, by the way, also passed in the wake of yet another terrorist attack yeah. in Europe, uh, they followed pretty much the same approach. So we collect data of everyone and we pass it on to the police. And there the court said, well, this is illegal because you cannot confirm that there is even an indirect link between a person and criminal activity. And of course, there were a million other problems with that. But here with, with the PNR, the court took a different approach. And this is, I'm not going to say worrying, but it's definitely why the developments in the sphere of border management and immigration are probably going as far as they're going because probably also the commission sees that there might be a different threshold in this um, context. But I think it's also interesting that PNR, so with PNR, every piece of data gets sent to law enforcement, right? So the airline collects the data, it sends it off to law enforcement, law enforcement does their stuff. Yeah. Um, and this is even more invasive than with data retention because data retention it was kept, if I remember this correctly, at the, the telecom provider and only could be requested in certain cases by law enforcement. So this is even more intrusive and it's more data to the to the government. Yeah, I mean, this this is right. And well, I mean, there are there are some people who try to litigate this mm -hmm. because so we have we have so far covered the, the international agreements on PNR, but that the whole system is closed by the PNR directive mm -hmm. that applies within the European Union that has been transposed already by member states and is functioning. And then there, 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 are some, there is an NGO in Germany that is trying to litigate this directive in the Court of Justice of the EU uh, on the basis that it is in breach of the Charter of Fundamental Rights and Article 7, 8 and 52. And they are trying to uh, they're trying to approach this from from two different perspectives. So they're trying to approach this through the perspective of the airline that is passing the data on to the law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And then they're trying to approach this from the perspective of the law enforcement that is receiving the data. Mm -hmm. And in both cases, they managed to get a preliminary question passed on to the Court of Justice and the Court of Justice will uh, will decide in those cases. So if someone wants to look it up, it's uh, German NGO GFF. Uh, they, are, they are litigating this if you want to read more about it. That's really interesting. I think it's, um, it's interesting to understand that traveling is not just you going to a place and having a good time. I think it's interesting <laughs> to know that there's so much more that goes into it. And there's so many different actors involved, private airline companies, law enforcement, um, different bodies, and all of this information is being exchanged. And I, I don't feel like a lot of people are aware of kind of how deep this goes and how much of the information is really 
going beyond where they probably think it's going. Yeah, I definitely don't think about that it, every time I step on a plane, it is checked if I'm not a terrorist by like police. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think the most fundamental issue here is that with those systems in place, the act of travel is a suspicious act. Yeah. So you are if you're especially if you're a third country national or if you're an EU citizen who is uh, getting on a plane by the act of travel, you are under, we can say so, under a suspicion because information about you is being stored for quite some time and it's accessible to institutions that are mostly interested in fight against crime and terrorism. So this is also, you know, an interesting aspect of this, of how one's uh, personalities being approached as being treated by by a state yeah well thank you so much for joining us Anthony this was super super interesting do you have any closing remarks for the audience um oh my god <laughs> <laughs> I was not prepared for that <laughs> I don't know like just anything to round it all up um I don't know I would encourage everyone who who you know who has tr traveled at least before the pandemic a bit to think about your data and maybe exercise data subject requests because this is you know probably something we have not mentioned yet but people who travel have certain rights data rights they can ask those institutions what data they have about them and i would encourage everyone who has the time and uh an effort and will to do so to to try and see and learn by themselves yeah. what's all the fuss about Anthony and I are going to do that. So I'm going to exercise my... Because I've been applying for visas since I was maybe 12 or something. So I am going to exercise my data subject rights and I'm going to see what information is out there about me and where it's stored. And yeah, maybe we'll do a follow-up <laughs> exactly. about the process and we'll you know. how it goes down. <laughs> then we'll let you know what we found out. Okay, then thank you all for joining us for this episode of our CQB. We hope you listen to us next time. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Our CQB is hosted by Tima Anwana and me, Paul Ibastola. We are brought to you by the Department of Innovation and Digitalization in Law at the University of Vienna. Thank you for listening and see you next time.